<laughs> I'm a little bit hesitant to say, okay, it happens tomorrow. But if you have a more technical view to this, then it's very easy to give also kind of a dedicated date. So you see that, for example, China uh, builds so-called smart cities, yeah. which are well equipped with um, geofenced uh, in the geofenced areas with different equipment, uh, calibration points, um, um, satellite communication, and whatever have you, um, then and telecommunication connection, et cetera, et cetera. That makes uh, autonomous driving uh, very, um, very much easier. In the end, um, it's always like this, the, the complexity of this autonomous driving on streets with pedestrians, whatever is else on our streets, is a very, very complex um, problem. And you need finally need to cover the corner cases. And um, in the end, you can, to a certain degree, cover the corner cases by just you know excluding them, saying, okay, there's just an autonomous vehicles in this city. And then you'd finally have, for example, a communication just between robocars and robocars. That is actually easy handable. If you, for example, have a robocar communicating with, a, uh, say, within a roundabout with a human being just on eye contact level, that's very, very difficult. So uh, if you take a smart city where you exclude uh, humans uh, from the driver's seat, uh, autonomous vehicles actually could happen in Chinese smart cities, for example, uh, say in 2027. Yeah, so that's something which is around the corner. If you finally would like to get this, you know, um, say level five independent everywhere, I guess that's uh, significantly more than 10 years out. Hello and welcome to the latest episode of Heads Talk with me, Elaine Pringle-Schwitter, the podcast where we talk to C-level executives, leaders of institutions and heads of multinationals. What are the current topics they talk? We listen. Can you imagine getting into a business or a market where you actually spend a hundred billion plus on a piece of paper. Are you kidding me? It was like a frying pan of the head. I got nothing against CFOs. It was not just the job of a lifetime, it was the job of a thousand lifetimes. My guest today is a proven expert in the automotive sector. He has worked extensively with the aviation industry and holds 12 international patents in the fields of data and digitalization, system control, propulsion, and autonomous driving, with more than 10 others in the approval process. We continue our new automotive series on Heads Talk today with a conversation with the head of one of the world's leading manufacturers of special lithium ion battery cells. Let's find out the state of play in this specific area of business. But before we get into that, here is a brief message. This episode is sponsored by Axia. Axia is the leading private cloud platform in the Alessian and Matamos ecosystem, combining intelligent solutions with security and control. Axia's clients profit from digitalization and automation of critical business processes in a cloud and hybrid architecture. 150 staff provide migration, engineering and support services to over 200 leading organizations in 32 countries. Heads Talk podcast with your host Elaine Pringle-Schwitter. Dr. Dirk Arbendroth is the CEO of Custom Sales. He has an impressive record and career in the automotive and aviation business. His aim is to develop the synergies between the companies and holdings of the Custom Sales Group and to create a large, independent, internationally active premium brand. Prior to this, Dr. Arbendroth has worked in a number of automotive and aviation-related companies to include being the Executive Vice President for Byton with responsibilities for powertrain and autonomous driving. 
He was the CTO of Automotive at Continental, head of powertrain BMWi at BMW Group. And in his most recent pass in July 2021, he joined serial founder Lucas Gadowski, um, international technology holding company, Team Global, as the CTO. Academically, Dr. Abendroth holds a doctorate in electrical engineering at Hamburg University of Technology. Incredible stuff. So without further ado, I'd like to welcome Dr. Abendroth, aka Dirk, to Heads Talk. Delighted to have you here today. Hi, Elaine. Thanks very much for having me. Excellent. Um, okay, let's get straight into this. Um, I mentioned it briefly in the introduction, so it will be good and, and great to hear from you in your own words about your organization, Custom Cells. So who and what is Custom Cells? Custom Cells actually develops and manufactures high-performance uh, lithium-ion cells since more than 10 years. And we differentiate from, say, R&D institutes and companies in a way that we cover and execute the full scope of manufacturing and automation. And we differentiate from, say, commodity large-scale manufacturers in a way that we address the premium segment and high-performance applications. Um, for example, high-performance cars, e-vitals, autonomous underwater vehicles. All right. And, and who would you say are your main customers? Yeah, a couple of our customers are, for example, in the automotive space at Porsche, who is a joint venture partner. And uh, on eBitol side, it's, for example, Lilium. And uh, we do have a very diverse portfolio of more than 400 different customers mm -hmm. uh, throughout the last 10 years. And we, of course, uh, tend to follow the trends. Yes. It'd be interesting to know where, where you are with the, um, the aviation and perhaps the shipping industry. And what's their reliance on battery technology? Yeah, airplanes um, and, uh, and shipping is to, to, uh, two totally different markets. So on the one side, um, airplanes would need to be um, uh, differentiated into two very different segments. Mm -hmm. One is the so-called uh, CTOL market, uh, conventional takeoff and landing. So that's airplanes which have a simple runway uh, takeoff and landing. Mm -hmm. um, and the other one is very simply speaking, this um, vertical takeoff and landing. Um, and those two have two totally different characteristics and also different maturity. On the one side, the conventional takeoff and landing is a, um, say, a conventional thing, and the remaining risks um, are majorly focused on execution. So getting the powertrain electrified, similarly to what we did uh, throughout the last years in automotive, um, and then, of course, getting the certified, that is a huge difference in, um, say, aviation industry in comparison to, to automotive. Mm -hmm. uh, but the execution risks in terms of, okay, how you build actually a vehicle and how you get the certified are, um, say, largely known. In comparison to that, um, you could say um, a less, uh, say, um, evolutionary, but more a revolutionary um, change is up with the eVTOLs. eVTOLs are um, rather... Um, revolutionary mm -hmm. in the sense that the overall power density and energy density needs to come at the same point in time. And you could simply imagine this by, by a very simple comparison. So you need something like an overpower of um, 1.5 to 1.8, maybe 1. Say, say 2 mm -hmm. um, for a takeoff in a conventional case. And you would need something like an overpower of a factor of five, six, seven for a um, vertical takeoff and especially the landing. And of course, everybody can imagine easily that a landing with nearly empty batteries and a full overpower of a factor six, seven is very, very challenging. So that makes the aviation space 
um, diverse and, and difficult. All right, okay. But I'm assuming custom cells has a, has a footprint in both those sectors in terms of the, the degree and their reliance on, on battery technology, right? Yes, absolutely. So um, we've got, say, in the end, three different pillars. One of them is uh, strongly R&D related and it goes back to, say, small economy of scale manufacturing um, and especially very high performance or very uh, bespoke um, requirements. Um, that is where we come from. That's our roots in the end. Um, the, the two scale cases we currently address is automotive uh, in general and try mm. to enter uh, the market space um, from the top, uh, from the premium level, very high performances uh, with a, um, say, appropriate margin. And uh, on the other side, we, we get into aviation, as I mentioned earlier, um, would like to kind of take the, the kind of, you know, um, low hanging fruits at the beginning and start with a conventional takeoff and landing. But we are in the space of EV tolls for more than 10 years, started back with Volocopter, are closely mm -hmm. collaborating with um, Lilium right now, and have also been, of course, in touch with all the other players like Archer, Joby, and you name it. Okay. Okay. You mentioned um, earlier uh, about your joint venture with Porsche. Can you tell my listeners a little bit more about this? Sort of how is BASF fits into all of this? And the recent news um, about the long-term strategic partnerships with Trump, what's happening there? <laughs> yeah, the joint venture, um, to make it uh, very simple, is a successful proof point for, for custom sales with our partner, Porsche. So we got, uh, we bumped into Porsche by accident to a certain degree. They, they simply asked us, okay, uh, can you uh, explore for us the world market and identify the most, um, say, powerful and, and known materials? And we went our path and uh, finally figured out a couple of good materials, uh, made a proposal and um, put in front of Porsche, okay, that's what the what the sales will be able to perform. And they they came back saying, well, are you sure about this? Um, are you, are you uh, kind of... Um, um, serious about this and we said yes yes we are and um, at some point in time we decided okay let's go into joint venture and if you now kind of look into the current state well after um after a year uh, mm -hmm. in time we finally have uh, jointly ramped up the team we have mm -hmm. manufactured the first um, sample cells uh, after less than a year and we've convinced of course with regards to the, to the performance of our technology and uh, built an ecosystem into which obviously you mentioned BASF also fits uh, it's an ecosystem of suppliers on the one side, but also we try to close the sustainability loop. And BSF is actually one of the crucial partners also to close this um, sustainability loop. Mm -hmm. And finally, now the stage is very simply speaking, there's now we're entering the gigawatt um, factory manufacturing phase. Uh, growth breaking is, is done and just dealing for close to tubing. And um, now we're simply looking forward to see this grow and succeed. And of course, we uh, we are about to to um, take away our lessons learned uh, for the next plan for the next yeah. project. Okay. Well, well, congratulations on the development of that that, that ecosystem. You talked about the sustainability element. Let, let's move in that space. You know, we are all in agreement that battery technology is a, a greater alternative um, to reducing CO two emissions, but how sustainable is the development of the batteries themselves? Do you think there's room for improvement there? What is you know, Custom Cells doing to be as optimal as possible in driving for sustainable solutions when developing the batteries themselves? Yeah, first of all, um, let me make a, a statement in the sense that, that uh, we do believe um, that sustainability is a significant portion um, of what we call premium. So I mentioned we would like to enter the market yeah. from the premium point of view, and we believe that for a social acceptance and for, um, you know, in the end, a willingness to pay 
the sustainability and cyclic thinking is a crucial point to cover. Otherwise, there's no premium. Um, so we take this serious. And the simple version of what, you, what you've been looking for is very simply speaking, the metal-based materials can be largely recovered. Mm -hmm. um, that is what, what is a kind of state of the art already today. Um, the electrolytes, to a certain degree, uh, remain a challenge. Um, but I would like to get, look at, let's say, a little beyond what we... Um, what we just you know, have in terms of materials and physical aspects. One thing is that the broad experience, um, very simply speaking, is missing. So the big scale of you know, battery returns is, is not yet here. So um, we are lack of, of real experience in large scale. Another aspect is that, that I do believe that incentivization and penalty scheme at some point in time needs to be um, severely in place, um, comparable to what we do in automotive, for example, mm -hmm. or in a, a comparable way. But that might be just be needed at the beginning. And at some, I would say, near point in time, we would simply also consider recycling to become, say, a, a primarily yeah. a source, a sourcing aspect, so a, a supplying aspect as well. And um, well, I, if it comes to further potential, I would say um, what we don't see very much today is a design for recycling. So um, to think this is cyclic from, from the very beginning of the design of the battery cell. So currently, recycling is clearly not a, say, prime, um, primary development target. It is kind of, you know, one thing which comes after um, development, after manufacturing, after um, you know putting all the cells into uh, into into the markets, and then wait for ten years to come back. So to a certain degree, uh, I guess there's a gap in terms of um, thinking sustainability right from the beginning. All right. Okay. So yeah, uh, uh, many of the the heads I've spoken to, especially in the battery space. Um, individuals in sort of Dratzmeyer, they always talk about not pinning down the recycling element of the batteries, but surely um, maybe not the whole battery, but perhaps parts of the battery is, is recycled. Am I right in saying that? Yeah, absolutely. Again, um, everything which is related to uh, to um, metals can be recovered uh, largely. So that's something we also uh, do as well uh, today. Um, again, the electrolyte itself, to a certain degree, comes to a limit, and it's majorly because of its. Um, you know, uh, we just need to get this to kind of a certain degree of of um, of um, uh, pureness, and yeah. that's difficult to actually reach when it doesn't come out of a certain uh, process. So recovering the electrolyte to a certain degree is a problem from a from a chemical point of view. And you always need to consider recycling in two different ways. So for everybody who's not kind of, you know, familiar with battery cells in detail, and there's always a certain chemical part of it, and there's always a certain mechanical part of it. So battery cells are simply made to last forever, <laughs> especially from a mechanical point of view. And if finally you'd like to, to recycle them to a certain degree, you need to break this. You need to break the case. Um, you need to get the electrolyte out, et cetera. And that is to a certain degree a mechanical step. And then afterwards, uh, followed by several um, chemical aspects. And um, th that actually brings me back to the very first statement I made saying that lots of the um, uh, recycling thinking uh, starts when we get back the batteries, but it doesn't start to uh, design the batteries as to be afterwards uh, recycled. Oh, excellent. Thanks for that. It's very comprehensive. Actually, out of curiosity, um, what is the green battery I keep hearing about? What is that? <laughs> yeah, in the end, um, we we um, we try to consider this as a holistic um, approach overall. 
Um, so again, we be, we do believe that there is a certain necessity to to play this transparent and consider all the holistic aspects which actually play into in the end an energy transition. And uh, let me just give you a couple of examples, and then you might figure out how big this is. One portion of that is okay. What kind of material do you supply and do you employ? So that needs to be a certain traceability. That sounds like you know a logic thing, but it's actually not state of the art. So uh, saying you know in very much detail, okay, our materials come from this or that mine. They mm -hmm. have been recovered by this or that technology. There's no children labor employed. There is a certain way um, of um, chemical way to, to actually get to the materials. Um, there's a certain footprint attached to exactly the materials we have here. Mm -hmm. um, and uh, then the next thing is, okay, how do manufacture cells? So uh, currently a site decision in terms of um, where do you put your site and where's your um, cell manufacturing, actually? Uh, you would need to, of course, qualify first for a chemical site. And another aspect then is, okay, how do you cover your energy demands? So we're currently figuring out, especially to have um, sites which are fully qualified or already now um, mm -hmm. and have a recycling concept, of course, and of course are supplied by green energy. So um, we need uh, quite some energy to assemble the cells and get them uh, ready for, for mm -hmm. the run. And um, um, one portion of that, for example, covers that um, our planned sites have a um, green hydrogen uh, supply available uh, in the future. So that is uh, always um, when you when you go into heavy um, assets, you would need to think further than just you know what happens um, within the next uh, three or five years. Yeah. So you need to plan ahead uh, significantly. And overall, I think you figure out um, taking this uh, into account plus. A uh, say a common um, manufacturing campus with all the suppliers mm -hmm. goes very much into ecosystem thinking and overall you finally could give it a full trace back. Okay, what is the CO2 footprint? What is the energy footprint? What is the water footprint of mm -hmm. my product? And uh, to a certain degree, we see this uh, being traced back already in automotive. So automotive OEMs, for example, need to trace back their CO2 footprints and materials uh, all the way back. And of course, that one by one also penetrates the aviation markets. And we consider also this, um, say, digital product, which actually captures all the trace back of materials and what is in our product um, as a significant portion of the product as well. So I guess everybody understands the holistic understanding of a green cell is much more than just the cell itself. All right. Okay. Fabulous. Fabulous. I must admit, I, I'm really appreciative of how you comprehensively answer the, these questions. Um, let's move away from the equipment, the machinery, and um, look at resources. Uh, what do I mean by this? Um, I read somewhere that thousands of jobs are, are currently being created in Europe and Germany's battery industry to fill in the gaps for the specialists needed in this space. Um, this, of course, will take time. So first, where is the gap and what needs to be done to fill it? Um, as well as what is the level, um, it, what level is this being addressed? I think uh, the major um, root cause, first of all, of a lack we currently have uh, lies, lies in the past and a, a same kind of a change of mind. So 10 years back or 15 years back, I, I remember clearly when we when we launched BMW i3 and i8, it was very difficult actually just, you know, to approach any of the battery suppliers and to get anything which was, you know, close to automotive um, certification, automotive grade. Mm -hmm. It was simply not possible. And at that point, 
time, the, um, the understanding, the generally accepted um, understanding in, in Europe especially, but also in northern uh, US actually was, well, we need to focus on getting control um, about the battery um, management system, the so-called BMS, that's the electronics which actually logically um, steers the battery, does cell balancing, et cetera, et cetera. Mm -hmm. And uh, well, you know, these these battery cells is something which is, you know, done far out somewhere in, in eastern um, um, part of the world or in China, um, but that will never happen in Europe. Um, and to a certain degree, there is now a change of mind. You you hear Oliver Blume, for example, who sometimes tend to say, well, you know, the combustion um, um, room actually gets replaced by the battery cell now. And that's where, mm -hmm. where the magic is. And um, to a certain degree, I think that caused, uh, first of all, the gap, because for more than 15, 20 years, there was a belief that, you know, battery cells itself would simply not be manufactured or developed um, at all in Europe. Um, so we are simply kind of in a certain gap of, um, you know, lack of interest, <laughs> or mm. we didn't address it for a long time. So now if it comes like, um, okay, what kind of levels is it being addressed? Um, I would say it's an, it's an overall lack so we see very, say, single activities uh, mm -hmm. being being you know uh, carried out, but the the um, say ramp up of skills is significantly slower than the ramp up of demands we have. If you see uh, the European battery companies growing up and planning mm -hmm. gigawatt hour plans, and there's a significant demands in terms of white color and blue color, mm -hmm. and both of it is currently uh, very hard uh, to get. So that's one of the major reasons why we, for example, are as a startup company in the end, um, yeah. they're going straight into our own education programs and even partner with competitors um, just to kind of overcome um, the bottleneck of, of, um, of talents. I'm, I'm wondering how, how much of this is probably zero to probably 90%. How much of this is because of the war in Europe and the need to, uh, there's an element of being self more self-sufficient, less reliant um, elsewhere. Um, I guess, well, overall, first of all, the education system in Europe actually um, has the, the power and um, obviously the, the knowledge um, and also the financial means uh, to be um, absolutely competitive. So so all the kind of, you know, um, necessary resources are given. Um, I wouldn't, you know, take this a percentage to, to make it you know, obvious mm -hmm. to everybody. I would say uh, we simply have a time gap. Um, to, to in the end catch up and to come to a certain level which would actually appropriately um, fill the gaps we currently have. Mm -hmm. And I would say the gap we currently um, um, have is something like in education, in terms of education, is something like um, four to seven years. So it's in the end one generation we are lack of um, to actually uh, catch up with the demands we currently generate in terms of manufacturing in uh, Europe. Mm -hmm. now, when do you think or at what stage do you think this training should take place? Should it be in the work environment? Should it be in universities? Should the element of it be in schools? Yeah, I think there's there's going to be a mixture. It's like, you know, mobility. Mobility is not just one thing. It's not only car, not only plane or just um, um, subway. It's always a combination. Um, and I think the same thing will happen here and it will balance out to a certain degree. On the one side, there's simply kind of an ad, ad hoc need we need to cover now. And especially when it comes, for example, to blue color, et cetera, you can do some, you know, training on the job, get people into this. We're currently now partnering with, you know, governmental bodies, um, try to get this rectified yeah. because in the end, that's a um, one thing you can, you can get your, your arms around 
um, within one, two, three years. Mm -hmm. um, you can go for educational programs uh, which actually go along and maybe ahead of a uh, plant. So if you finally go into um, a manufacturing plant and try to build this up, it anyway takes one, two, three years. And if you start properly, say appropriately early in time, Mm -hmm. educate talent they can actually generate talent uh, well in time that actually applies to to especially blue color um, um, talents uh, whenever it goes to um, to R&D um, or to to white color um, shop floor um, most probably we will also see other trends um, in the end uh, engineers engineering and, and and white color is international and we most probably will see um, other international uh, sites uh, growing up and to to finally uh, find new hunting grounds for especially r d and, and white color and it might be that there are um, also companies trying to reach out to different regions in the world might be europe but might also be beyond mm -hmm. um, mm -hmm. to finally um, get this uh, resolved but what we also see at the same point in time there's a macroscopic move um, towards um, okay we would like to be you know independent so europe is claiming it would like to be independent in terms mm -hmm. of energy transition in terms of digital life uh, in terms of um, other um, aspects the us is kind of claiming a similar thing um, and to a certain degree, China tries the same thing as well. So there's a certain tendency, which is not um, just thinking global um, only. So to a certain degree, I think that, that will to certain, yeah, to a certain degree also kind of slow down, just thinking very far beyond. And that might strengthen also, for example, um, close by uh, European locations. Mm, okay. Now, for my listeners, can you describe the sort of because what we're talking about are engineers, predominantly the next level of engineers and engineering that, that I keep hearing about. And is there a new name for them? I hear this all the time, that we need new types of engineers. What is this new type of engineer that really I'm hearing about? Yeah, I guess everybody's got, you know, his or her own understanding about what this new type might be. My very personal view is this. Um, well, technologies change, and they, they change pretty rapidly. So, so uh, uh, rapidly. So that's something which is kind of a moving target. But what is what what remains is that, especially this battery uh, thinking, overall for a uh, you know very naive view, uh, might be a very simple thing if you look into manufacturing and um, and the costs and um, the manufacturing aspects of it, mm -hmm. you figure out it's a very complex system. Uh, so what we mainly need is a social interaction between uh, the, the, the different uh, engineers. So say the, the social interaction becomes the critical success factor. So if you'd like to kind of um, ask me directly, which engineering discipline is the most important one to be successful, I would clearly answer it's uh, human engineering. And uh, just to give you an example um, from a leadership point of view, for example, um, so I used to be in US and I used to be in, in, in Germany and one of the kind of key, say, fundamental uh, mental uh, differences is um, thinking, uh, for example, US like we cross the bridge when we come to the bridge or European like, well, let's uh, think it through before we uh, come to a conclusion. Um, is both of it has certain value. And I needed some time to really find uh, some few people who understand this attitude right and especially are capable to apply them appropriately in different situations. So for example, if you're on R&D phase and would like to quickly um, push the, the product forward in, in its development, uh, say to accelerate this, then obviously fail fast is a very, very good opportunity. And it's sometimes difficult to convince European thinking people to get there. And it's not about who made a mistake, it's just about, okay, what kind of you know learning or lessons learned can we get out of this and how can we solve it and fix it? 
And on the other side, whenever you're done with, well, that's my product, let's do a, a, um, a freeze, and now let's go into manufacturing, then all of that is about ex um, execution excellence. Yeah, so at the end, it makes a huge difference whether you produce 100,000 times, a, you know, um, um, in the end, um, a product you can sell or 100,000 times per day, uh, something which is just trash. Yeah, so in the end, there's always a good time. And in the end, you need very much um, empathic and social skills to first make people um, uh, understand the very complex system and bring together the different, you know, understandings to overall um, just understand and analyze the situation. And at the same point in time, you need to be very strong in execution and uh, change different paths. So I would say it's a human engineer. Mm, okay, interesting. Um, before I move on to the next question, I just want to let the listeners know, uh, uh, and yourself, I read um, an article um, written by Custom Cells, why the European battery industry needs its own training standards. I'm not sure if you're familiar with it. And if, if you're okay with it, I'm happy to share that in your episode description notes for the listeners to go to your site and read further about Custom Cells thoughts uh, on that. Of course, very much appreciated. Okay, I will do that. Okay, all right. I, I want to ask you next about um, what I call the, the, the innovation routes. It's a sort of which comes first question. Um, there's a hell of a lot of um, research and development that takes place in, in custom cells. Effectively, what is the initiator? Is it customers' requests? or the internal technology development or external forces? In summary, what is the driving force of innovation in customer cells? Who or what is triggering change? Yeah, that's a, that's a very interesting question. And, and to be straightforward, that question keeps being asked uh, again and again, and uh, people find different answers. Um, say dealing with innovation is very much depending on your very specific situation mm -hmm. and has got very many different um, diverse sources. So I think the first very first um, source of innovation for uh, custom cells again was 10 years back um, in the end believe. So at mm -hmm. that point in time, um, the two co-founders, Tog and Leo, actually believed in lithium-ion batteries, and the Fraunhofer Institute actually said, okay, we don't believe in it, we stop it. So that's how they actually got their first machinery and their first product line, mm -hmm. <laughs> um, you know, um, and I guess that was simply belief, which pushed them into, okay, let's, let's try hard to really make it a success. And the next thing I was um, curiousness, uh, to say, okay, well, uh, why don't we try different materials, um, materials um, for separators, for anode, cathode, electrolytes, which no nobody has ever uh, tried before. So it was curiousness. And then it's, uh, as you mentioned before, uh, we, we actually entered a phase where um, largely the innovation was driven by customer requests okay. and, and requirements. And I guess the best source for innovation in our current situation is always Whenever um, a problem occurs or is put in front of yourself and you simply need to solve the problem and there's no way out than just you know, solving this problem. So I guess a good problem is a very good source of, of, of innovation whenever you're able to shape a certain environment that people understand a problem to be um, you know, a trigger point and not a problem. Mm -hmm. So I think that has been the major um, drivers for, for innovation for custom cells. And uh, last but not least, um, sometimes it occurs that simply people figure out, well, we simply can 
So we do it. Mm -hmm. And that's, for example, how we moved in a couple of different innovations, which nobody was uh, thinking for um, uh, really um, um, before. Um, I think one of the um, aspects which also pushed this forward was to a certain degree, you need to be brave and just try. So an example is pre-lithiation. Pre-lithiation is a booster technology you can actually put on top um, of uh, lithium um, chemistries mm -hmm. and uh, push uh, energy density and also power density to a certain degree. And it's in the end in, in, in an additional manufacturing um, step you would need to add. And we, we saw lots of research work on this, um, but nobody was seriously trying to build cells. And that's what we do for three years now. And we're um, uh, one of the, maybe the only one uh, doing this since uh, three years. And that to a certain degree is simply braveness and a certain you know attractiveness also to risk and to fail. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's good. And, you know, you just give me an example of some of um, the successes, but if, I wonder if you can give me another example, if you can tell my listeners of some of the other um, uh, customer success stories or, or development stories that can clearly be attributed to custom cells. Yeah, um, let me take a different ones. Well, you know, one of the obvious ones we mentioned earlier is obviously the Porsche to Adventure. Um, yep. For us, that was to a certain degree a big challenge because in the end, um, it was the, the, the classical, um, you know, um, meeting point of a startup um, in the end led by, by self-made uh, managers. <laughs> at a small scale, <laughs> actually meets a big corporate. Yeah, Porsche is big, and Volkswagen Group obviously is even bigger. And there's mm -hmm. lots of different, uh, say, um, a difference um, in how they manage business, how they understand problems, how they solve problems. And of course, for ourselves, it was a big learning curve uh, to, in the end, be qualified also by Porsche. So Porsche was very helpful getting us to a certain level. So for us, it was maybe not a technology um, uh, first place uh, learning aspect, but it was um, especially from a you know professional um, um, point of view and how to deal with organizations and manufacturing, a mm -hmm. very helpful uh, success story for us. Another one is um, pre-lithiation as I managed before, as, as I mentioned before. So pre-lithiation again is a, a booster technology which can apply to very many different uh, base uh, chemistries and different, uh, of course, um, formats as well. And we see uh, this to a certain degree needs uh, a very broad um, <clears throat> aspect of skills which also kind of shows the say USP of, of custom cells. We cover a very high uh, vertical degree of integration. And that is that we start from the very first PowerPoint ideas through um, research into all manufacturing aspects. And that is what just very few companies actually can cover. And as usual, uh, the very first manufacturing attempts are not successful. So you need to fail a couple of times to finally make it a success. And especially this uh, pre-lithiation comes up with lots of, you know, different challenges um, we haven't seen before. And uh, the diversity out of that then grew very, very quickly into uh, a few dozens of different ideas. But finally, just, you know, three or four of them turned out to be, uh, say, um, handable. Um, and well, now we figure out uh, which, of, which of them are actually affordable. And maybe last, a very technical example, which we consider to be a um, say a success story is uh, the high temperature cells. So that actually grew out of a, you know, a niche, which was uh, driller heads. So driller heads, which actually go down deep in the earth. Mm -hmm. And oh, I guess everybody can imagine if you go down a couple of miles down in the earth, um, then, well, you focus on, you know, just making the drill a success. And um, well, there are a couple of sensors and you need to send up signals and operate the driller, et cetera. And that is what, what is done by our high performance, high temperature um, cells. 
And um, obviously there's no cooling to these batteries, so they need to operate up to 150 centigrades, which is very, very high temperatures for batteries. Um, mm -hmm. And that might sound like, okay, it's just a niche and why I'm mentioning this, um, but let's you know take an example uh, and try to transfer this towards cars. So we've done the same thing, for example, for e-motors. So um, actually cooling the rotor is very, very difficult of an electric motor. So that's why we just you know introduced um, rare earths to finally you know, bring this up to a high temperature range. Mm -hmm. And the same thing might happen to um, batteries at some point in time as well, saying, okay, if the cost um, you know, uh, point the bomb of high temperature cells comes down a bit and we make further progress, um, then at some point in time, OEMs might be interested. So OEMs in terms of automotive and aviation as well, might be interested simply to get rid of all the cooling expenses they have in a car. That's a few thousand cars, a few thousand dollars per car. And uh, it might be interesting at some point in time to transfer this into mobility. Hmm. Okay. You know, let, let, let's look ahead um, with this one. Um, describe how you see custom cells in the future. Where will the organization be? What will it be doing? And with who? Or who would you like to be working with? <laughs> yeah, of course, we do have a, uh, a joint venture in place, but I, I would like to take it maybe from a more general point of view. So we've got um, uh, uh, three different pillars. One of them is actually to look into aviation. Aviation might be, you know, um, mostly exciting. There, um, In the end, you, I guess I'm not currently able to really um, name all of the OEMs we're going to partner with. Why? Mm -hmm. In the end, it's not yet 100% clear who of the OEMs are going to make it. Of course, we are partnering with Lilium and keep fingers crossed uh, to kind of finally get this to, um, to the market. Um, but of course, we do understand we need to position as, an, as a tier one. A tier one finally means we need to be available for, for most of them. And our target is actually to be one of the very first in the market to offer a certified aviation cell. Um, so, so that's what is our major target. And it's not in the end uh, customer focused very much. It's rather focused on um, really certif certifying our product and our organization. Mm -hmm. And in the end, we believe uh, once we make this um, uh, hurdle or pass this, this hurdle successfully, we believe uh, the OEMs which make it to the market will simply talk to us. So that's a totally different market. And it's driven by the fact that the very high performance batteries are simply um, the enabler to make something new, something re revolutionary like ad taxis um, possible. Um, on the other hand side, I mentioned that the kind of you know, short-term commutes, you see Norwegian uh, airlines actually very much positioning for that as an example, uh, will most probably take over for a while. These are the so-called CTOLs, conventional takeoff and landing, which I mentioned earlier. I guess that will be one of our first customers um, too. Mm -hmm. And uh, well, another, uh, say, uh, different pillar of um, of business uh, was in the last 10 years and will remain is our beyond business. Um, that's actually kind of small scale, uh, close to research, very bespoke um, technology because that is our window into uh, the future. So we'll keep it because it's profitable and it gives us a certain view into what happens next, maybe in the mass market. So we're gonna keep that and that's gonna be a broad variety of, for example, uh, autonomous underwater vehicles mm -hmm. um, and very many other aspects like um, satellites, et cetera. Mm -hmm. So we believe that is uh, useful for us. And last but not least, we are very much <clears throat> also looking now into licensing. So uh, especially coming from a premium point of view, um, we would like to kind of take a, diff a slightly different approach, not just scaling up manufacturing, 
but also to um, to especially pick uh, technology pieces, one abstraction level below a full cell, so technology parts, and actually license them to other tier ones and OEMs. So it's also a diversity of different business models and technologies. Okay. Um, let, let's end this episode of Heads Talk with a question asked to all of the guests in the series. I'm glad you mentioned in your answer when you talked about autonomous vehicles and even underwater vehicles. Um, when do you think autonomous vehicles will be used, will be in wide use across the globe um, for recreational purposes? If you can give me a year and um, why do you think this is? Yeah, um, I guess uh, so you're going to get you're going to get a year, <laughs> I promise. Yes. But let me differentiate because I think uh, the, the overall um, question actually has um, separate answers. So first of all, uh, whenever you look into a, an airplane, most of the autonomous flying already is here and everybody knows there's an, there's an autopilot and everybody knows it. And just you know for takeoff and landing, et cetera, even for these procedures, there's automatic uh, procedures. Um, if you have got a certain infrastructure in the airport yeah, uh, and in the, um, in, in the air. Uh, so to a certain degree, this is here already. If you look into submarine life, then you find uh, the same answer. So the autonomous um, water um, vehicles, which for example, go um, along, find leakage of pipelines, um, scanning and mapping of, um, of the ground, et cetera. That is already state of the art. And that's actually what we fuel with our batteries. So that is already existing. Um, and uh, and it's here now. Uh, when it comes to automotive um, mm. autonomous vehicles, and I guess that's the core of your question, then I would like to differentiate again. So we see, I was actually part of this, so I was in charge of autonomous driving and, and advanced driver systems, for example, in Byton, and of course connected to that, also that in, in Continental. Mm -hmm. And um, I'm, I'm straightforward. Um, the, the, the years have been pushed out now several times. Like, okay, it comes in three years, it comes in five years. And then again, three years later, it comes another uh, three years. <laughs> I'm a little bit hesitant to say, okay, it happens tomorrow. But if you have a more technical view to this, then it's very easy to give also kind of a dedicated date. So you see that, for example, China um, builds so-called smart cities, yeah. which are well equipped with um, geofenced uh, in geofenced areas with different equipment, uh, calibration points, um, um, satellite communication, and whatever have you. Um, then and telecommunication connection, et cetera, et cetera. That makes uh, autonomous driving uh, very, um, very much easier. In the end, um, it's always like this. The, the complexity of this autonomous driving on streets with pedestrians, whatever is else on our streets, is a very, very complex um, problem. And you need finally need to cover the corner cases. And um, in the end, you can, to a certain degree, cover the corner cases by just, you know, excluding them, saying, okay, there's just an autonomous vehicles in this city. And then you'd finally have, for example, a communication just between robocars and robocars. That is actually easy handable. If you, for example, have a robocar communicating with, a, uh, say, with an roundabout with a human being just on eye contact level, that's very, very difficult. So uh, if you take a smart city where you exclude uh, humans uh, from the driver's seat, uh, autonomous vehicles actually could happen in Chinese smart cities, for example, uh, say in 2027. Yeah, so that's something which is around the corner. If you finally would like to get this, you know, um, say level five, independent everywhere, I guess that's uh, significantly more than 10 years out. All right. Actually, I thought you were not going to give a year, so I'm quite pleased that you did eventually <laughs> give a year. I thought, okay, here's the politician, he's not going to give a year. Excellent. Thank you so much for this, um, Dr. Dirk Arbendroth.
absolutely insightful conversation indeed. Many thanks for your time and insights. My pleasure. Thanks for joining me today on this episode of Heads Talk. Don't forget to subscribe to the show via my website, elainepringle.com forward slash Heads Talk, wherever you get your podcasts. Finally, I'd like to thank our sponsors, guests, and you for helping to make the show possible. Please join me next time where I'll be featuring more executives, C-suite leaders, and heads of multinationals. Heads Talk podcast with your host, Elaine Pringle-Schwitter.